Hey guys, my name is Tony. I'm on staff here with Saul Company. Um, and if I don't, okay. All right, that was a sound. That wasn't a woo, but that was a sound. Okay. Uh, if you guys don't know me, I'm kind of a one-trick pony. Um, I'm really predictable in conversations because I only ever talk about one thing. And I know some of you guys are like, he's talking about lifting. I'm not. Shut that down. We're going to talk about that later. Okay. Um, but basically, this was like brought to my attention when a couple months ago, I was at Spy House with some people from Salt Company. I went to go to the bathroom, and I guess I took a long time, whatever, I don't know. I went to the bathroom. I ran into Abby and Hannah on the way back. I get back to the table. They're like, oh, where were you? And I was like, oh, you know, I went to the bathroom. And they were like, oh, okay, um, we thought you were sharing the gospel with the stranger. And I was like, in the bathroom? Like, come on. Like, I'm weird. Okay, I had this moment of self-realization where I was like, yeah, that's actually true. Uh, I, like only ever really talk about one thing, and, and he's my best friend. His name is Jesus. So we're going to do that today. Um, but yeah, I... Oh. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Okay. So people can see your face. Yeah, for sure. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, um, yeah. Also, I learned some new information today. Uh, Jack Miller, who you guys saw up here. Um, guys, I kid you not. He asked for this book called Systematic Theology for Christmas, and some of you guys are like, what is that? And that's actually the correct response because you shouldn't read it. It's like a dictionary. It's like a dictionary about the Bible. I'm like, he read it cover to cover for fun. I was just like, oh my gosh. Anyways, that has nothing to do with my message, but I just wanted to say that. Um, yeah, guys, I, I actually just believe that, that Jesus has changed my life. And I remember thinking back, um, some of you guys, I don't know, I'm 21. Three years ago, I was a freshman at the U of M, and I remember walking from Pio to the light rail one Sunday morning. And Pio, this was pre-renovation Pio. This was like sketchy Pio, okay. Um, yeah, I remember walking from Pio to the light rail one Sunday morning and thinking to myself, man, like everything in life is going pretty well. Like all things considered, I think if you were an outsider looking in, you would have said, okay, you know, he looks like, you know, he's, he's headed on the right path. I was um, living the C-word lifestyle, which uh, means Carlson, and, um, and I was, <laughs> some of you guys are like, wow, that hurts. Yeah, you deserve that. You're fine. Uh, yeah, so I was living the Carlson lifestyle. I was on my way to get internships. I was doing all the right thing. I was getting good grades, and on the outside, you would have been like, man, that guy looks like he knows what he's doing, but on the inside, I would say my freshman year of college was defined a lot by just like shattering insecurity and, and this dull sense of inadequacy that I just couldn't shake. Like I think I was walking around every day like, man, what's the next thing that I got to do? Do I need to get another job? Do I need to get a better internship? Do I have to look more Carlson at school? What do I have to do to actually break that trend in my life? And so, yeah, guys, if you don't hear anything else for the rest of the message, I want you to know this, that, yeah, you are welcomed here and that Jesus will meet you where you're at. And freshman year, I never thought that three years later, I would actually be able to experience true joy, know what grace and hope looks like. And my life's not perfect right now, but I think, man, I think back to that time, and I'm like, man, how could God change someone as broken as me? And maybe you're feeling that. Maybe you've had a tough week. Maybe seasonal depression is setting in. Maybe school is getting really stressful, and you're not exactly sure how to process or how to cope. I want you to know that this is a place where Jesus wants to meet you where you are at. So, yeah, let's open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. That's the, 
uh, and we're doing a series on it. This is the last message in the series, but 2 Corinthians is like 80% through your Bible. Okay, Isaac, this is hilarious that this was your icebreaker, but um, yeah, so I had, a, I had a relationship that I regret, so let's just talk about that. Uh, <laughs> That it was smoother in my mind when I said that in my mind. Okay, um, okay. So this passage is like all about regret, and I remember uh, when I was in seventh grade. <laughs> Some of you guys are like, "Those don't count." No, it counted. Okay, <laughs> her name was Kira. In my mind, she was like six feet taller than me. I was so short, guys. You have no idea. Um, she was tall. She was pretty. She laughed at like 10 to 15% of my jokes on average. And I was like, that's great. We're going to get married. I was like, this is it. Um, I found the one. I remember, well, this is, this is whatever. Okay. Um, I remember one day, I was like, okay, today's the day. I'm going to kiss Kira. And so we went on this walk and I was building up all the courage in my tiny, like three foot tall frame. And I was like, man, I got this. This is going to be great. Um, here's the problem with that moment is... You know, human anatomy says to kiss, that's like lip on lip contact. Guys, keep in mind, she was like six feet taller than me. So I like tried and then, and then I didn't hit her lips, I hit the bottom of her chin. I don't know how it happened. It, it just came out and she looked at me like, why did you do that? And I was like, dude, I don't know. I, I'm screwing my, for the rest of my life. Like, I don't know. Okay, okay. Um, so I regret that. I'm glad that that was the icebreaker because that helps me. Okay. Uh, we all have stuff we regret. Right, uh, for some of you guys, this is the part where I'm supposed to be serious, but I don't know, okay. Um, yeah, for some of us, it's seventh grade relationships where we try to kiss someone's mouth and we hit the chin. Uh, for some of us, it's stuff that's actually a lot harder than that. And maybe for you, your regret has said, and even in this last week, maybe this last week wasn't exactly what you thought it'd be. And so, look, Paul in this chapter of 2 Corinthians describes this reality that we all have regrets, we all have guilt and shame, and there are two responses to that. So before we get into the message, we have to do some legwork so that we can actually understand what he's talking about. And so first off, I'm gonna describe this concept called godly grief. He uses it all throughout the chapter, it's everywhere there, um, and I don't think we use it a lot in our language. So basically, godly grief is, is what we would call conviction. Now, conviction in, in like the Christian language is basically that feeling you get in your soul when you know that you messed up. But, it, but I think it's a little bit deeper than that because it's actually suddenly becoming aware of something that was true of you that you didn't know before. I think that's when it hurts the most, right? Like it, it actually opens up a wound in your soul that you didn't even know you had. It's like when you realize, man, like I was just thinking about this, but it's like when you're just walking somewhere and then this moment passes in your mind where you're like, I'm actually not the kind of person I persuade on the outside. I'm not actually that good of a person, but actually my thoughts and my actions would indicate that I'm a lot more broken, that I hurt people because I've been hurt, that, that maybe the way that you live or the things that you've done provide this, this feeling in your soul where you're like, oh, I wish I was different. And I think it's that light bulb moment where you realize the brokenness the racism, the, the hurt in your soul, the stuff that you might not even see, but gets revealed in you. And when it does, it cuts deep. Now, listen, I, I want to make this clear that godly grief is a little bit different from worldly grief because in godly grief, you see that you weren't just breaking the rules, but you were breaking God's heart. So the difference in godly grief versus worldly grief is that it's a vertical issue. 
that for a lot of us, our relationships are horizontal, right? People in our life, people that we love, people that we care for. And hurting them is really brutal. But, but godly grief is when you realize you didn't just hurt those people. That if you identify as a Christian, somebody who's following Jesus, you hurt Jesus. You hurt him. And, and that hurts. And that sucks. And, and it provides in us this feeling of, man, I wish I didn't do that. But here's the hope that Paul lays out is that in this grief that comes from God, this conviction that we're talking about, it doesn't just fester in your soul. Like, it's not, like, going to get moldy. It's just, like, it's not going to just sit there forever. It actually produces something beautiful in your life. And we're going to get into that a little bit more later, but I would say that it leads to radically better life. Um, Now let's transition to worldly grief. So when I say grief, you can, like, switch out the word grief for regret. They're synonyms, but worldly grief is, is different because Paul says that it leads to death that it has no value. And so the feeling, the shame and guilt from your horizontal relationships, the stuff that you do in this life that you feel guilt for, that has nothing to do with God, might change your actions temporarily, right? Like it might, it might deviate you from the path just for a little bit, but it won't actually change the foundation of your soul. So you'll continue to go back like an addict. And I remember my freshman year of college, I wasn't really walking with Jesus. And honestly, I wasn't involved in any kind of student ministry. And I remember um, dating a girl my freshman year of college. And, and we went way too far physically on a pretty regular basis. And every time walking back from her dorm, I would feel guilty. Like I would feel shame. Like I knew that for some reason what I was doing was wrong, but it was just a horizontal thing. So we would go back week after week after week and nothing changed. Because what's true about worldly grief is it just builds up inside of you. It doesn't actually do anything to change who you are. But, but the thing about godly grief, it, it doesn't just change your behavior. It, change what you, it changes what you believe to be best for your life. So, yeah, godly grief, it, it leads to reconstruction of your soul. And I think that's why this passage has been so influential for me. We're going to talk more about this later, but this, this passage isn't just words on a page for me. Like, this passage has actually categorically changed one of the most important relationships in my life, and we'll talk about that a little bit, but I want you guys to know that this isn't, this isn't just me telling you guys about some verses. This is some life-changing stuff for me, and I would love for you guys to lean into that. So, yeah, our first point will be that godly grief is good. Okay, yeah, so... Listen, I'm like never that pumped about grief. Like grief is like sadness and I'm never like, wow, I'm so sad today. Look at me, like, wow, this is so good. Like I'm, I'm never that excited about grief, right? And here's the definition of grief. It's deep sorrow, especially that caused by someone's death. So how, how can this grief of the Corinthians, which were real people in a church at that time, be a cause of joy for Paul? Right, it's like a weird classic Christian thing where someone's like sad and you're like, it's gonna be better for you. And they're like, oh my gosh, that's not helpful. Um, why? You guys were supposed to laugh at that. That was funny. I'm sorry. That was great. Okay. Um, why? Okay, so why is this a cause of joy for Paul? In fact, in my Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 has a subheading called Paul's joy, and that's it. So here's two verses I wanna read out for you guys. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. That's verse four. Verse nine, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so you suffered no loss through us. 
Okay. Paul can rejoice in their grief because he knows that even when they can't see it, that it's good. Um, all right, guys, time to talk about my only hobby again. Uh, I love Lyft. This has become kind of a meme here at Cell Company. Tom, Tom, you did a great job with the water drugs. But um, anyways, that, that was in the hype video for Fall Retreat. Okay, so when you go to the gym, Hypothetically speaking, I would never say this, but you might hear this. You might hear a bro in the gym be like, hey man, I'm just chasing a pump. And then you're like, oh, that sounds so douchey. And you're like, yeah, okay. Uh, I would never say this. This is a hypothetical situation. Probably Drew would say this, but not me, okay. Uh, okay. So what is getting a pump? I know this sounds weird, just, just flow with me on this. Okay, what is getting a pump? The idea is that other than just for vanity reasons in the mirror, there's actually a scientific reason why you try to get a pump. The whole purpose of lifting weights is that you break down the muscle fibers in whatever area you're working on. And then as soon as you start to do that, your, blood start, your heart starts to pump blood into that area of your body. The reason why it does that is it begins the reproduction process right away. So the more that you chase the pump, the more recovery that you have. And honestly, guys, getting a pump is like pretty painful. Like your body's not a huge fan of this process. It kind of hates that you do it, but it's painful, but it's good because it actually leads to growth. And so what Paul is excited about is he's not just joyful because they're in pain. He's joyful because he knows what it's leading to. He knows that it's leading to a better life. And he knows that it's molding them and changing them and being formed so that they don't have to live in their style of life anymore, but they can actually live in the life that God has called them to live in. And that's the beautiful thing about conviction is it's not just some pain that you have to deal with. It's pain with a hope. And I think that leads us to point two, which is godly grief leads us to repentance. So I'm going to read out verse eight and nine for you guys. Uh, verse eight, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. Verse 9, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so you suffered no loss through us. Okay, guys, verse, verse 8 makes me laugh every time I read it. Because basically Paul is saying he's sorry, but not sorry. You know, he's like, I'm kind of sorry, but not really. Like, he, he says he's sorry that he's, like, called out the truth in their lives. Like, the Corinthians, as we've talked about this entire series, were... Uh, not that good at living life. And so Paul would continually call out truth in their lives. And he wasn't sorry about that. He was just sorry for the way they responded. And so when they called out truth in their lives, they responded in, in agony and grief, and they couldn't see what he could see. But he's also not sorry because, because the grief they felt was godly, and therefore it was temporary. So in verse 8, it says, though only for a little while. This is just a reminder that the conviction that you feel or the grief that you feel when you slip up or when you do something that you wish you wouldn't have is temporary. It doesn't last forever. And in verse 9, he rejoices. Okay, he's back to the joy thing. I don't know. He's just really pumped. Okay, he says uh, he finds joy in the fact that they were moved into repenting. So Paul, he associates joy with repenting which is like way different than I have understood repenting for my entire life. So when I was younger, I went to this Korean church and I can speak Korean kind of like how you can speak Spanish, you know, like you probably can't. Okay, uh, I, I can say like, hi. Anyways, I would sit in Korean church 
and just have no idea what the pastor was saying. Like, I, I couldn't even understand, like, basic language. I couldn't understand his sermon. So I kind of always associated repenting with, like, a negative light. But the way that Jesus talks about repenting is so much different. And I, and I wish I would have known because it's just so much more beautiful. So in Matthew 4, 17, he says, From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Guys, this is Jesus' first command in his public ministry. He's had, he had a lot of great commands throughout his ministry, but what I love about this is that he gives you hope, that this is Jesus just on the street telling people that you can actually live a better life. He says to turn away from your sins or your ways and turn to God because the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, this is kind of a crazy statement because what do we know about the kingdom of heaven? We know that it's beautiful, that it's everything good, that it's identified by love and compassion, and it's actually who Jesus is. So repentance is turning away from one way and going to another, turning away from our sins and turning towards Jesus. Now, guys, about a year and a half ago, I got to go to South Korea for the first time in 11 years, which was just so cool, and I got to watch my sister get married, and it was an awesome time, but one of the things that we did was we went paragliding. Now, if you're going to do this, really read up on it, because I was just like, oh, this is cool. I want to try it. And basically, we got to the top of this mountain, and then my paragliding instructor was like, hey, just so you know, don't stop running. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, we're going to run off the cliff. Um, some people stop running too early, so they'll trip. And I was like, what do you mean they trip? Like, off the cliff? Like, do you just die? Like, is there like a, did I sign a waiver that I wasn't, I was just like, what do you mean? And he said, I was like, okay. So he said, just keep running, and then your feet are going to lift off the ground and keep running. And I was like, that sounds pretty dumb, but I'm going to do it, because you said. And so we started, oh, is that the picture? Okay, that's the picture. Anyways, so we started running. I was strapped to this guy, and I was freaking terrified. And we started running, ran right off the cliff, and my, my legs kept moving or whatever, but when we got out and we were just like, I realized that it was just me, him, and like this kite thing, and we were like flying down this mountain, I was freaked out. And so the entire time, okay, not the entire time, at the very beginning, this was my posture, holding onto my straps, closing my eyes, scared out of my mind, okay? I was like, this is horrible. I don't know why I signed up for this. And it wasn't until my instructor told me to open my eyes. And when I began to open my eyes, I began to see quite literally the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen. Yes, you guys can kind of see it, but there's like a village off to the left. It was down this mountain range in my home country, and I, I felt for the first time what it looked like to just not have to worry about anything and just like live in the experience. And I think, man, I think back to that story, and I'm like, what if that entire story was me just closing my eyes and holding on tightly? What would that story look like? I think for a lot of us, we think that repentance is just feeling bad about what we've done. It's not just feeling bad about what we've done, but it's, it's opening the eyes that we have to see the beauty of Jesus. It's you can live your entire life holding on tightly to the things that you're afraid of, tightly to the things that you're afraid of talking to other people about, the brokenness in your life, or whatever has happened in your life. Or Jesus gives you a way to open your eyes and see the beautiful life that he wants you to live. And I think that's why I'm passionate about this is, is it's a beautiful thing. Repentance is not just something that 
I didn't really understand when I was going to Korean church. It's actually this beautiful reality that Jesus wants to invite you into the kingdom of God. He's saying, turn away from your sins because that crap sucks. Look at the beautiful landscape of the life I want to offer you. And, and, and he offers us the best life possible. And that leads us into point three, that godly grief leads to salvation. Okay, so this is pretty radical. Like we've just gone over a lot of different big claims, and this one might be the biggest. That somehow that conviction, that sorrow, that, that regret, that grief could actually lead to salvation. Let me read out verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Okay, so let's, let's re- quick recap. Okay, godly grief is good. It leads us into repentance, which is turning away from the brokenness of ourselves to the beauty of Jesus, but it also leads to salvation and salvation without regret. Okay, I am just recently learning what salvation, okay, like literally for my entire life, I thought that salvation was like this golden ticket that you get, and then your job is just like hold on to that golden ticket till you die. Like I, I thought that was actually the case, which might be good news if you're like an extreme futurist, where you're like interested in starting to live when you die. But if that's you, I don't know. That's pretty tough. But for the rest of us, that's actually not that good of news. But I, I have this quote that I was thinking about by, by George Ladd, and he says, Nowhere is salvation conceived of as a flight from history, as in Greek thought. It is always the coming of God to man in history. Man does not ascend to God. God descends to man. Okay, so what happened is that we couldn't deal with our own stuff. And so God sent someone to deliver us from the brokenness of our own lives, that feeling of inadequacy, the, the insecurity in your heart. And he saved, sent someone to save us from something. And that something was sin. Okay, so currently in 21st century Minneapolis, we don't use the word sin that often, okay? But, but here's what I would argue with you is that we might have gotten rid of the language of sin but we have not gotten rid of the experience of sin. And so let me just describe a couple things and see if you resonate. Is externally, we see sin all around us. We don't live in this bubble. We live in a city where you can see broken families, addicts, hurt, underprivileged neighborhoods. You see that all around us. So we actually see something that we, it just clicks on our mind that something's not right. And, and we may have reframed sin or renamed sin or recategorized it, but not only do we see it on externally, we see it internally. Because what you feel was never God's design for your life. I think a lot of us, we walk around often with this feeling of anxiety, guilt and shame about our past, and worry about our future. And, and maybe for you, like me, before I met Jesus, you have this dull feeling in your heart that there's something fundamentally wrong with me. Maybe for you, you walk around from class to class and everything looks good, but you ask yourself the question, why am I sad? This shouldn't be how it is. Everything else in my life is telling me that my life is awesome, but why am I sad? Why is there something just a little bit off? And that's sin. Because God never designed you to live like that. And what you're experiencing now is a hollowed out version of the image of God you were created to live as. So we needed something to be done. 
And so that guy that God sent, his name is Jesus. And he came to forgive what you've done, but also reconcile you to God so that he could fill that void inside of your soul and allow you to live as a full human being, someone who tastes joy and understands what it looks like to live in the freedom of grace. And he gives you hope and he unites what you were with God and you no longer have to live with that dull feeling of anxiety anymore. And I'm not saying that, like if you guys are struggling with that here, I totally get that. You can be a Christian, absolutely. I struggle with anxiety all the time. But the difference is that now you have hope. There's actually a future in this life where the love of Jesus will continue to reconstruct your soul. And so you don't have to wait till you're dead to begin to live. You can begin to live now. It's the beauty, joy, grace, righteousness, that stuff that I talked about, the kingdom of heaven, that is who Jesus is. And when he enters your soul, he begins to rebuild the broken pieces of your heart. So salvation is Jesus was sent by God, the Father, to descend into the world, die on the cross, resurrect to heaven so that one day he could bring heaven down into your soul and you could live. Okay, so why does this matter? We've talked about some big theological words, okay, repentance, salvation. Okay, why does it matter? Because I would say that God, the grief and conviction changes you. 2 Corinthians 7, 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. Okay. I can't do this whole thing, but look, godly grief is moving. And in, in the beginning of that verse, he says, For see, Paul is telling you to look in the mirror. That I don't care if you came to know Jesus a day ago, maybe you don't know him, or, or 10 years ago that he is changing your life. I talk to so many people, including myself in the mirror often, where I think I have never changed, right? Like, like, okay, the same person three years ago is the same person now. What I would say is that conviction in your heart has been changing you this entire time. And you might not feel like it, you might not see the effects of it every single day, but godly grief is changing you. That conviction in your heart is changing you. And that too, godly grief is proof of Jesus working in your life. Because what Paul knows that they don't is that godly grief is actually is proof because it's experiencing godly grief is actually to know God. That you can't feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit unless the Holy Spirit is residing in you. And so even when they're messed up, even when they're going all over the place and doing horrible things, Paul can look at them and in verse 13, he says, therefore we are comforted. And in verse 16, he says, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. He can say that because he knows that no matter how far you stray, no matter how far you think you've messed up, that you are never too far gone for the arms of Jesus. what this means for you is that your past doesn't define you. I think a lot of us get frustrated because we sit here and we're asking God to change us. And maybe for you, you've done all the right things. You've like really tried and you can't change. Well, here's the comfort that you can have. It's not up to you to change yourself. Because as Jesus resides in your soul, he begins to change you inside out. And sometimes it's hard to see but it's happening. And guys, I, um, I want to end on this, that, yeah, this, this passage, right, verse 10, 
Um, for godly grief leads to repentance and salvation without regret is kind of near and dear to my heart. Um, six weeks ago, I, I stood in front of you guys and I told you that I could see the measure of my dad's love through his sacrifice. So I could honor him in public in front of you guys. But then what I began to realize is that that Saturday was his birthday. And as I sat in Spy House, spending time with Jesus, I began to realize this one thing, that in, on Thursday night, I could honor him in front of all of you guys, but I never actually told my dad that I loved him. That as I searched back the last like 15 years of like memorable memories, I couldn't think of a single time that I told my dad, I love you, or a time where he told me that he loved me. Because what's true is that for the last 21 years, I've harbored this like intense bitterness and anger in my soul towards my dad. And you remember that verse, salvation without regret? I just assumed that even though Jesus has changed my life, that he couldn't touch that. That my relationship with my dad was too broken, that the chasm was too wide, that there would be nothing to actually change that. And so I'd given up. And I had just accepted the fact that one day I would be a 70-year-old man looking at his grave feeling full of regret because I wish I could have said something. I wish I could have reached out. I wish I had the courage to love him, but I couldn't muster up the love in my soul. And I began to realize that, man, that Saturday as I processed through the bitterness and anger, I always thought the problem was my dad. I always just blamed him for some of the harder stuff we went through when we were younger and, and maybe some of the, the anger and sin in his life. But, but what I began to realize that is that in this culture, your intellect or how smart you are is determined by your ability to talk. And what's true is my dad can't speak English. And so I remember as an eight-year-old kid going to Cub Foods time and time and time again and not understanding why my dad was so anxious. But we would roll up into the grocery line and I would watch as the cash register, that cashier looked at my dad with just deep disrespect and dishonor. He looked at my dad like he was a three-year-old boy that couldn't put together his thoughts. And I remember not knowing how to process that. Like, how do you process that as an eight-year-old? So I didn't know how to process it. So, so instead of processing it, I became that. And I looked at my dad with disrespect and dishonor. And that Saturday morning, I just began to bawl because I realized that for 21 years, I thought the problem was my dad. I thought the problem was that he wasn't good enough, that he should have been a better dad. But what I realized is the problem was instead of treating him as Christ would have treated him, I treated him like culture treated him. And so it's no wonder that we were estranged. It's no wonder that we never had a real conversation for the last 15 years. And so I remember calling up my dad, feeling the conviction of my soul. And I was just, I felt like Jesus was saying, listen to me. I can, I can free you from this hurt. And so I called my dad and, and, and through tears, I began to apologize. I told him, dad, I'm sorry. I've held this against you for the last 21 years. And I began to tell him, the truth of the gospel, which is that, Dad, because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of what he says in John 8, so if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. I now actually can be free to let go of the sin and brokenness in my heart and just fall into your arms. And I just want to say I'm sorry. 
And, and he told me that he's been wanting to tell me for years that he was sorry. He just couldn't muster up the words. And he apologized for everything he'd done. And, and for the first time in my life, I said, Appa, saranghe, which means, Dad, I love you in Korean. And I got out of that car. And it was like Niagara Falls, guys. I mean, it was just crazy. And I got out of that car, and I started to cry, but it was like, so joyful because for the first time in my life, I knew what freedom tasted like. Because what I didn't know is that for 21 years, I thought that I was keeping my dad in the cage, but I was the one in the cage. And so when I opened up the cage to let him out, it was as if Jesus was telling me that you're good, you're free. That you're free now, you don't have to live with that anymore, that there is a new future for you. And that the verse in John 8, so if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed, became visceral and it became real. And I felt the love of my best friend pulling me near. And I was crying, but I was laughing and I was crying and praying. And I was so joyful because in a month, I'm going to go see my dad. And for the first time in my life, I'm going to tell him, I love you. I care for you. I can't wait to experience this new life with you. We're going to talk about Jesus now because of the freedom that he offers us in the cross. I get to live in that freedom because that's who Jesus is. He sets you free. And I, and I want to close by saying this, that maybe you're here and you've never tasted that freedom. Whatever it is that's on your heart right now, it may not be father wounds, but it might be that person that cheated on you in high school. It might not be that, but it might be a mistake you made a couple months ago, whatever it is, whatever it has been weighing down on your soul, if you've never tasted the freedom of Jesus on the cross, I want you to know that he says you can have it. And you might feel like you're trying to run with broken legs, but Jesus is gonna pick you up, put you on his back and run to the finish line and show you what it feels like to live a life of love, beauty, and grace, not the guilt and shame that you feel. Jesus wants to set you free and give you salvation without regret. Let me pray. Yeah, God, I'm, I'm grateful that you are so loving, that you are more gracious than I could ever imagine, that you would use broken vessels like us to talk about the beauty of your grace and your glory. And God, I never want to forget what it looks like to live in the freedom that you offer us, that you want to give us salvation without regret, that we don't have to live in our grief, our regret, whatever it is that's holding us down, but we can actually taste and see the beautiful life that you want to give us, that you tell us to open our eyes and see your beauty that we don't have to live in the pain anymore, but we can just live in your arms. And God, here's my prayer, is that if someone is here, Jesus, who has never tasted that freedom before, that you would open up their eyes, open up your arms, and they would run into the arms of the beautiful Heavenly Father who will never let them down, who will never leave them, who will never leave them or forsake them, God. For those who have come in with burdens on their chest, Lord, you lift the head of the weary. God, those who have come in blind, would you open their eyes so that they could see your love? Because God, that's what we want. We want to know you, glorify your grace, and live in your love. Amen.